Today, we're going to talk to James, who's going to give us unique insight into why going to Amazon seller conferences is beneficial. Also, some definition of supply chain terms, such as 1P and 3P, and which might be the best bet for you. How's it going, everybody? Welcome to another episode of the Serious Sellers Podcast. My name is Bradley Sutton, and I'm very privileged to have James Thompson on the line with me. James, how's it going? It's going great. Thanks for having me on today, Bradley. It's a pleasure to have you here. Now, James, you bring a lot of unique knowledge. That's one thing I, I like doing on the show is bringing people from different backgrounds, different different specialties. And, and you have a couple specialties that I wanted to talk about today. And you know, we just recently went to, to the Prosper Show, which you are one of the co-founders of, and this is something I wanted to talk, not necessarily just about the Prosper show, but you know, my personal experience, which I don't think I've ever told you before, some of the listeners have heard, is how I even got started in the whole Amazon you know, game really was just one day I just on a whim went to a conference, you know, mm-hmm. an Amazon conference. It was in Chicago. It was called mm-hmm. um, Zon Squad Live. I don't know if you ever heard of that one. I think it was only in one or two years, but it literally changed my life. The networking there and just the information just opened my eyes. So I'm sure the great, great majority of our listeners probably have never been to an Amazon conference, let alone, you know, maybe a conference about entrepreneurs. But can you talk a little bit about why you think people should attend conferences? What some of the benefits are and some, maybe some experiences that you've heard? Well, let me start by saying uh, in, my, in, in my time working with Amazon sellers, I, I would have to define this as potentially one of the most lonely existences possible. Most Amazon sellers are basically islands onto themselves. And whether they're working out of their home or their garage or a little office, trying to figure out what's going on, what other people have done, how to learn from folks that have already gone down this path. You've got north of 3 million sellers today on Amazon. And the reality is there's only so much secret sauce to go around. And a lot of it's not really secret sauce. A lot of it is really just experience. Hey, what did you do when this problem ran they ran into this problem. What, what did you do when Amazon changed this uh, setting? And unless you've got a network of other folks that are in a situation where you can bounce ideas off each other, it's really hard to figure out what's going on because Amazon doesn't exactly release information in depth explaining exactly why they're doing what they're doing and how to make the most of the change. I, I run an agency working with large brands and I need to connect with other folks that are also managing uh, brands. Because again, Amazon's, I'm going to use the word secretive. It's not very good at explaining in detail what's going on. And often changes are made and, and Amazon doesn't even make the announcement. And so by having a group of other folks that you you meet at conferences, but then can continue to interact with after the show, um, you know, naturally we're all in this together. Even if we're competing against each other, we're all in this together because we all have to figure out how to survive in this Amazon sandbox. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Me personally, in my going to conferences, I almost get as much, if not more value from like even just sitting down with sellers, the, the, the breaks and the networking and sitting together with a group of sellers I've never met before mm-hmm. uh, at lunch. Uh, is that your experience from the feedback you've gotten that it's kind of a two-edged sword? It's not just about going there for the, the knowledge download from the seminars, but the actual networking as well? At the end of the day, if you if you attract enough of the right people with reasonably good content, uh, y- yes, you've got folks who will come to the show because they're saying, oh, gosh, there's a session on this and that topic, and I want to learn about that. 
but you're absolutely right. If you can meet other strangers, other folks who are in the same boat as you being sellers on Amazon, and you realize, gosh, these folks are similar enough to me that maybe I should connect with them and talk to them after the show. And I can bounce ideas off of them and I can figure out how to deal with some of my daily struggles where I don't really know what I'm doing. I, I hope I know what I'm doing, but maybe somebody else has been down this path before. Maybe somebody else has an Excel spreadsheet or a template or has some sort of a recipe that allows them to figure out how to solve certain problems. You know, that, that kind of networking is, is, is super, super useful. Um, I'm not suggesting necessarily people have to be part of, you know, big mastermind groups. But, but at the end of the day, we, we'd all like to have a handful of people that we can reach out to and say, listen, I'm, I'm stuck. What am I supposed to do? Where, where, where do I go to solve this problem? And when you go to a conference, an educational conference, um, everybody's got the same idea, which is we're, we're here to learn, whether that's from each other, whether that's from the speakers, we are here to learn. And if we can build a better network of other contacts of folks who are in similar boats as us, you know, that's going to all make us stronger. So I, I'm not I'm not trying to be a proponent of any one particular show one way or the other. But I but I think at the end of the day, if it's one way education, people just telling you what's going on, then you've missed the whole the whole yeah. purpose of a conference. It's really got to be the networking. You know, a couple of years ago at Prosper Show, we we explicitly decided to try to make it easier for folks to meet other sellers that might have similar interests. And we invested heavily in some software uh, and and actually some physical equipment to get pe people able to set up and meet each other. At the end of the day, you walk into a room and there's 2,000 people in the room. Mm -hmm. who, who exactly am I supposed to talk to? How do I find somebody who's got answers to questions that I have? And that's where, you know, being in a position to, to, to spend money on networking equipment and get folks to connect with each other. In some ways, it's kind of like it's kind of like uh, professional uh, dating where, you know, you're, you're trying to find somebody who's got interests similar to yours. And hopefully they are in a situation they can help you. And likewise, you can help them. You know, that that's all really, really important stuff. You just gave me an idea about a new concept of of conference we can do, like a speed dating, for, but but for Amazon sellers where we have it, them all mm -hmm. online and see if we can make. So who knows? We, yep. we yep. might have just come up with something right here, James. Well, at the end of the day, it, it's a very lonely existence being a seller, and yeah. there's no reason to continue to be lonely like that. And, and I don't say this in a comical way, but but the reality no, is, no, yeah. we, we we don't need to solve every problem by ourselves because most problems somebody has figured out how to solve in some way. There's just not a lot of good ways for stuff to be documented. I'm not a big believer in the seller forums, which is one way that sellers today uh, try to get information. Because again, I don't, I don't really know who's behind any of the comments. Mm -hmm. And I don't mm -hmm. know if things are terms of service valid. I don't know if somebody's making something up. I don't know if somebody's trying to sell me something. Whereas if I can meet somebody in person at a conference and say, yeah, that person seemed like a reasonable person. It's not, it's not that I'm going to trust everything they have to say, but that person seemed reasonable enough. Um, you know, I, I would very much encourage sellers to, th to look at the the overall process of personal development and say, you know, in a 365 day year, am I prepared to spend three or four days out of the office interacting with other sellers to try to figure out not just uh, new content that might be offered at the conference, but also meeting five or six or 10 other folks who I can reach out to and continue to network with throughout the year. That's really, really valuable. And yes, Absolutely. we're all very busy running our businesses, but in some ways you don't see the forest if you're just staring at the trees all day long running your business. Yeah. And again, going back to my personal experience, I mean, that was like, I think it was 2016. Here in 2019, I still have in my 
personal network, you know, people I, I'm communicating with on, on Facebook Messenger, WhatsApp mm-hmm. on a weekly basis from that I met at that conference. So it, it's so powerful, the connections you can make. Just completely pivoting here, something you had mentioned earlier, you know, you're working for an agency now that deals with a lot of, you know, bigger brands. And, and that made me think of, you know, 1P, 3P, the P's I like to talk about. Most of our listeners might know exactly what we're talking about, but I know we have a lot of listeners as well who have no idea what does 1P mean? What does 3P means? What are all these threes or what are these P's, you know? So can you give a quick just definition of what 1P and what 3P means and then how it relates with what we're talking about with Amazon? Sure. So the the two primary sides of the the Amazon marketplace, um, you've got what one part, what one, well, what's called 1P or first party, which is the business of brands wholesaling products to the Amazon company, what's also known as Amazon retail. Amazon buys the inventory from the brand and then Amazon becomes the seller of record. So the relationship the brand has with Amazon in that situation is a, is a typical B2B wholesale relationship, something that most brands already have with, you know, other big retailers. Uh, when Amazon wholesales the product from a brand, Amazon has pricing decisions, inventory decisions, and so on over the brand. So that that's a typical relationship for larger brands. You know, for example, if you're Procter and Gamble, Amazon has a vendor manager who works with Procter and Gamble and buys product in you know pallets and truckloads. Um, that that's your typical one P relationship. The other side of the house is what's called three P or third party third party sellers, and that's that's where you've got you know, north of 3 million individual sellers, um, you know, uh, who are either brands themselves, they may be resellers, they may be folks doing retail arbitrage, but these are folks that own the inventory they're selling. They come to the Amazon marketplace, uh, they get to list their products and, and try to get sales on Amazon. If they get a sale, Amazon takes a selling commission, but the seller of record is, is this third-party seller. That third-party seller makes decisions about what products they're going to carry, what prices they're going to charge, and so on and so forth. So, for for most of us, you know, we're, most of us are not Amazon. We are third-party sellers. Some of us may have first-party relationships with Amazon, meaning we wholesale to Amazon. And some companies have the unusual situation of having an, a hybrid relationship where they both wholesale to Amazon, but they also have a third-party account where they may sell some of their products. So. When you look at the two sides of the house, Amazon absolutely needs third-party sellers because third-party sellers bring hundreds of millions of SKUs worth of selection to the platform. And then Amazon typically, on the first-party side, they will cherry-pick the best-selling, most visible brands and put those into first-party. Okay. Now, let's talk. Let's dive a little bit deeper into this because sure. you know I'm sure for people might already have this question, or if not, just based on what you just said, they might have had this question like, what? are the advantages and disadvantages of both the 1P and 3P model, you know, selling yourself or selling to Amazon. Talk a little bit about the advantages and disadvantages so that somebody might be able to make an educated decision on what might be better for their brand. So b- before I answer that question, I, I want to qualify one, one important issue, which is Amazon has to invite you to become a first party seller. So even if you decide that first party makes most sense for you, you may not get an invitation. And so if you don't get an invitation, good luck with that. And in fact, we're, we're seeing lots of recent trends where Amazon is actually streamlining the number of brands that are in first party and pushing more and more of them to third party. So happy to answer your question. But just to be clear, even if you decide, hey, first party sounds like a great, great opportunity for my brand, um, don't expect a, an invitation from Amazon anytime soon unless you're a very large brand 
um, that has gotten a lot of attention off of Amazon. And now somebody at Amazon says, hmm, here's this brand that, you know, we really should be carrying. And we'd like to have a conversation with the brand about potentially wholesaling product. Yeah. So, 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 so the, I guess maybe the question I should have framed it as, let's say either A, somebody already has an invitation and yep. now they're deciding which one to do, or B, maybe they're already doing one, but they're wondering, hey, should I keep doing this or should I scale back or should I go back to 3P? So, hmm, where, where to start? So let's let's start with the situation where you don't have a first party relationship, but somebody from Amazon calls you up and says, we love your brand. We want to do business with you. Now, now the big question for the brand is, do we want to do business with Amazon directly or instead might we consider becoming a third party seller ourselves and going direct to consumer? So for, for very large national brands or international brands, if if you're a Procter and Gamble, you're a Unilever, you're a Coca-Cola, you're already a B2B company. And on the most part, you know, most of the product you sell, you're already wholesaling to somebody else. So as a company, you understand that model. You've got salespeople that, you know, create and handle purchase orders, um, for, you know, for, for, from the channel. Um, you know, it's, it's a business model that's well understood by most large brands. Um, when, when you're a smaller brand uh, or an up-and-coming brand and, and you do, in fact, get that invitation from Amazon first party, you know, there's, there's a number of issues that you need to think about, and I'm happy to talk about a handful of them here. Although, in fairness, there, there are literally dozens of issues, dozens of trade-offs that need to be evaluated. The, the most important issues have to do with who's going to control distribution, who's going to control your pricing, who's going to control your branding, who's going to tr- control your inventory levels and selection. Th- those are the primary issues that brands need to think through. And if they turn around and they wholesale product to Amazon, Amazon owns the inventory. Now Amazon gets to make the decision about the retail price that's going to be charged for those products. Um, you know, Amazon will have what's known as content authority, meaning they ultimately get to decide what your brand looks like on the Amazon channel. All of that happens when you're wholesaling products to Amazon. And for some brands, they say, you know what, we don't really want to have to get our hands dirty and understand how to sell product directly to consumers. So we're willing to let Amazon sell our products and make choices about the the retail prices. Um, we're happy to submit content into the Amazon catalog with the understanding that Amazon ultimately may, may choose to alter that branding. But you know we're we're okay with that because we love the fact that Amazon wants to do business with us, and there's some pretty big volumes they're looking to to make to place through their purchase orders. That 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 all sounds pretty good. I'm a big believer that brands should control things like pricing. And branding, and what what often happens the moment Amazon has invent has your inventory, meaning you've wholesale products to them. Amazon has another side of the house where they, they go out and they scrape the prices of your products on literally thousands of other websites. And if they find the product is being sold at a lower price elsewhere, especially a channel that's a critical competitor to Amazon, like for example, Target.com or Walmart.com. The moment Amazon has inventory of yours, they control that inventory. They now control, it's much easier for them to control the pricing on that product. And so, you know, let's say, for example, your product, you're trying to sell it at $40 in all channels. But lo and behold, Amazon discovers the products being sold somewhere else for $35. Amazon is now in a position because they, they host or they, they have some of your inventory, they can start offering your product at $35. And you know, that, that I understand that Amazon wants to protect customers, its own customers from potentially being overcharged or being charged more than what another channel might offer it at. 
So by Amazon being able to lower that price and match someone else's lower price, you know, that, that makes sense if you're trying to protect the Amazon customer. The problem is, as a brand, you may not know even where that other $35 price point's coming from. And now that Amazon has matched it, guess what? Just about every other retailer, online or offline, can easily see the Amazon price, and that becomes the new norm for your pricing. And so that $35 price, instead of that $40 desired price, uh, you're going to have to deal with the, the challenges of now having other, other resellers who, who may have been told by you, hey, we want you to sell at $40, but now guess what? Amazon sells at $35. So uh, if, you, if you don't have pricing discrepancies across channels and Amazon is, is, is carrying your products, you know, that can be a good model for you because it's, it's fairly straightforward and consistent with what you do in other channels. Unfortunately, if you've got a lot of price discrepancy across channels, Amazon's well, well set up to take advantage, to find and take advantage of that lower price that they find elsewhere. And because Amazon's so big online, both for product search purposes and for purchasing purchases, consumers come to Amazon before they come to just about any other online site. And so if you don't control your pricing off Amazon and Amazon finds those lower prices, they match it. And now that's your new normal price that every retailer online or offline is going to look at. Yeah, I mean, I noticed that even like, you know, if, I, if I'm going to Best Buy mm-hmm. or, 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 or Fry's Electronics yes. to, to buy something, they, they actually take Amazon as a, as a price match. You know, like Amazon Prime is one of the price match. So yeah, if Amazon price Prime mm-hmm. all of a sudden is 30 bucks, and, and, but I, w- I want Fry's Electronics to be selling at 40, yep. well, Fry's, Fry's has to drop it to 30 and that, that could very much, you know, affect the relationship that you have with, you know, with those other companies, because now if they have to cut their prices and now they don't make any money, well, guess what? They're going to probably cut you off. So pr- price erosion can accelerate very quickly if Amazon has access to your inventory because they've got very good tools for finding product prices elsewhere and then matching to that price, which then other retailers will match to before you know it, it's all downhill. Um, so uh, to, to, to be clear, there are reasons why companies may want to sell first party, potentially because it's easier internally for them to handle another wholesale client like like Amazon buying products from them. Um, if If a brand has done a good job and is investing heavily in marketing and other channels and wants to make sure that its brand is positioned consistently across channels, uh, it can sometimes be a little bit difficult on the first party side to succeed in uh, making making your branding just the way you want it because you've got to get Amazon to approve every image, every title change, every bullet point change, and so on. Uh, but 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 if your ca- your catalog's fairly stable and you've got stable pricing across channels, you know that model can work reasonably well. What typically happens is Amazon will engage in a first party relationship with a the brand. There, there's a honeymoon phase where you know for the first few months you're thinking this is fantastic. Amazon's placing the big purchase orders. You're getting the, the, the product out to Amazon. Customers are starting to see the product on Amazon. Life is good. It is not uncommon for Amazon after a few months, once their algorithms have kicked in, they'll realize, you know what? We asked you for access to your full catalog, but we only really want 30, 40% of your catalog. So all those other products uh, are no longer being purchased by Amazon to be ultimately sold to Amazon customers. And so brand is left thinking, well, what am I supposed to do to get the rest of my catalog uh, available for consumers to, to, to buy? And so that can become a challenge for that B2B brand that thought that they were getting their full catalog onto Amazon, but now that's no longer the case. You've also got a, you've also got a situation where, uh, you know, the, 
I don't I don't mean to generalize too much, but it is not uncommon for Amazon after a few months to say, hey, Mr. Brand, thanks so much for doing business with us. But turns out your return rates, not what we thought it was going to be. Uh, you know, inventory over here is not moving as fast as we thought it was going to be. Bottom line, it's costing us a lot more to handle your product than we thought. And so we really need you to lower our wholesale prices. Um, otherwise, you know, we're, we're, we're going to be challenged in continuing to carry your product. Well, if the brand has made careful financial analysis around the choice as to whether they're going to go to Amazon or not, and now the now the pressure is on for them to continue to lower their, their wholesale prices, that, that can be an unexpected shift for brands that they may not be prepared to handle. On the other hand, if, if the brand is uh, you know selling third party, meaning they, they are the seller of record, they make decisions around what prices they're going to charge, which products selection they're going to provide, their inventory levels for each product so as to decide to stay in stock or not. The, 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 those are all you know, important decisions for brands to make. But again, a brand that's not used to being a B2C brand may not have people in-house that know how to build forecasting models or, or, or know how to decide whether or not the, the retail prices, in fact, are the best prices to drive demand. Um, for, for, for a brand that has a Shopify or a big commerce or Magento site, you know, they're already selling to consumers somewhere else. That decision to become a third-party seller may not be as challenging. Um, you know, we, we, we have run into to several large brands that have said, we'd also like to have a third-party business because we have end-of-year inventory that we want to clear through, or we want to be able to test new SKUs in small quantities and gather Amazon customer data to see whether or not there's actually interest in these new pack sizes or flavors or what have you. In those situations, a third-party account can, can be a very, very good thing for a brand. Um, on the other hand, well, because a third-party account uh, is a relationship you have directly with the consumer, one of the, the single biggest challenges for any B2B brand in, in becoming a third-party seller is recognition that they're on call 24-7. Uh, Amazon has a requirement that you have to answer customer emails within 24 hours, 365 days of the year. So the fact that you don't work weekends or you take July 4th and, you know, New Year's Day off, that's nice. But if an Amazon customer sends you an email and you have to respond within that time frame, well, that's uh, that's your job. So unlike a traditional brick and mortar retailer who can lock the store and go home at the end of the day, as an online third party seller on Amazon, you've got to have somebody on call to check emails every day. And that that becomes kind of exhausting, especially if your volumes don't don't lead you to think I'm going to continue to invest in this channel. There's no sandbox on Amazon, meaning that there's no warm up period. If you're a third party seller on day one, you're held to the same performance standards as somebody who's been a third party seller for years and years and years. And so you can't really dip your toe into Amazon. You're, you're basically, you know, I, I think of it as sort of like being on jet skis. That the moment the boat pulls away from the from the from the shore, you're on your your jet skis and you're going 100 miles an hour or whatever speed it is, and you don't get to warm up. So that that can be very challenging, especially if if a B two B brand says, you know what, we got this this guy or this gal in our company, and you know they've got some experience with online selling. Why don't we put them in charge of the Amazon third party account? Only to discover. Uh, Amazon has a ton of performance metrics on which we're evaluated, and somebody's got to know what needs to be done to make sure we trend well on all those criteria. 
And so you've got to have somebody who actually knows what they're doing from the get go. It's kind of like saying, hey, let's do some brain surgery. And, you know, I think I've been a doctor once, so I can probably figure this out. No, it doesn't work that way. Day one, when you're doing brain surgery, you better understand how to do brain surgery because the patient is is uh, is tracking your every performance. That, that, that's kind of what's happening with Amazon. Yeah. So now with these, though, I mean, is is almost all of this, you know, some people are saying that this whole thing you're talking about might eventually become a moot point because of possibly Amazon merging, you know, 1P and 3P. And now there's no longer just a seller central and a vendor central, but something called one vendor. Can you give us any insight on that? Like, is this whole discussion even going to be a discussion in a few months if, if that happens? So I think it's important to understand what we're talking about when we say merging these two platforms. Today, if you're a third-party seller, the portal you use to communicate with Amazon is called Seller Central. If you're on the first-party side, wholesaling products to Amazon, you use a different portal called Vendor Central. Vendor Central is, um, I don't want to talk out of turn, but it's basically an antiquated system. It hasn't been updated in a long time. And quite frankly, it needs a major upgrade in order to provide vendors with you know better data, uh, much clearer user user experience and so on. Seller Central, um, while people complain that it may not be perfect, it, it's a whole lot better than the vendor the vendor central portal. And th- there has been a push to take the functionality within Seller Central and apply it and offer it up to vendors such that there would be only a single portal through which any company, whether that's a first party brand, whether that's a third party seller, they would all be using this this single uh, portal call it what call it whatever you like um, let's let's call it this one vendor portal where go in and you've got access to your inventory and your financials and so on and so forth so what while the software components might be merged th- there will still always be a need for third party sellers and the vast majority of third party sellers will never have a first party relationship with amazon it's important to understand what what amazon's doing here if you've got 500 million SKUs in the catalog you want to have 500 million SKUs if you're Amazon, because you want customers to be able to come to the platform and find pretty much whatever they're looking for. On the other hand, if you're Amazon, you don't want to be in the business of carrying inventory on 500 million SKUs. And so you need third-party sellers to take that inventory risk to be able to carry all that selection while at the same time, Amazon gets a selling commission every time that third-party seller makes a sale. Amazon wants to carry first-party inventory on only the biggest, most important high traffic inventory. Because as we talked about earlier, Amazon needs to be able to control pricing on the most important products that the most number of customers coming to Amazon are looking for. At the same time, Amazon's not interested in carrying, you know, the extra small purple polka dot version of something that one customer a year might go looking for. That's just not very interesting inventory management. But it's really good if Amazon can get that selection on the platform because when that one customer does come looking for it, gosh darn it, I want to make sure they buy it on Amazon.com versus going to some other website where they might decide in time to do more and more business. All right, that makes sense. Now, for you know, one thing I think that that's important that some brands you know might wonder: there are some big brands, there are some small brands mm-hmm. where mm-hmm. maybe they don't have a personal presence on Amazon. Like they don't have their own account, but their stuff are sold throughout Amazon, maybe even in the millions of dollars, who mm-hmm. knows, you know, yes. like somebody like a Samsung, let's just say, for example, yep. but you know, in their viewpoint, they're like, Hey, you know, our products is being moved. We're still getting money. You know, like it's down the line because, you know, somebody's buying it wholesale, you know, somebody's buying it arbitrage or whatever. 
But what would you tell brands like that who just say, ah, oh, yeah, I'm fine with just, you know, letting everybody wholesale and arbitrage, you know, my products. Would you tell them, hey, you know, that that's fine? Or would you 10 out of 10 always suggest making their own presence, whether it is 1P or 3P? What would you say to that? Let me answer the question a little bit differently. If you're a brand that has enough customer interest and customer demand, somebody's going to put your product on Amazon. And whether that's the retail arbitrage person, whether that's somebody reimporting product from another country, whether that's a gray market seller, <clears throat> somebody's going to get their hands on your product and sell it. I, I, I've, I've talked talked about this in the past where, you know, it's as simple as little Johnny gets a birthday present from his grandmother. He doesn't want the, the, the item his grandmother sent him. He can open up an Amazon account, turn around and sell that product on Amazon. Do you see how easy it was for little Johnny to create new selection on Amazon? Well, if you're the brand of that product, you're saying, I don't want my product on Amazon. Well, guess what? Amazon's an open marketplace. And if your brand has any level of interest among consumers, somebody's going to put it on there to make a buck selling your product. So th there's two absolutely critical questions every brand needs to ask of itself. Number one, if we assume our product's going to be on Amazon one way or the other, whether we want it to be or not, who's controlling our branding? And, and that, that's, to me, that's the most important question to answer. The second question, and I'll come back to the first in a minute, but the second question is, how are we going to control distribution? So control branding, control distribution. They're separate, separate but related questions. The first question on branding, nobody cares about your brand as much as you do as the brand owner. If, you're, if you own a brand, no one knows what exactly the right wording is for your brand, the right images, the right context in terms of how do we sell this to consumers and make it obvious that consumers' problems are solved by using your product. Nobody cares about this as much as you do. And so if you, the brand, choose to uh, overlook or underinvest in what your brand looks like on Amazon, then you're going to find out that, guess what? The content used for your brand on Amazon is not what you want it to be. If we recognize the fact that somebody somehow will get your product on Amazon, whether you want it there or not, it's important for you as the brand to get your catalog content set up in Amazon. So Amazon has these tools like brand registry where you can go in, lock down your content so that you, at least if somebody else comes along, somebody you can't even recognize, but somebody else who's got your inventory and starts selling it on Amazon, you know that they're going to be selling, most likely selling using the content that you've provided to the Amazon catalog. That way, the Amazon customer, the experience they have when they look at your brand on Amazon is going to be consistent with what they would see if they went into one of your channels that you do actively manage, like, for example, a brick and mortar channel. So number one, get your branding under control. Make sure you manage it as a brand, because if you don't manage it, you're going to end up with, you know, some cruddy iPhone photo and somebody who spent 30 seconds putting a title and bullet points together to describe your brand. That's probably not the way you want your brand represented, because what, what is branding? Branding is delivering consistently on the promises of whatever, you know, whatever features and benefits you're trying to deliver. If you can't consistently message what your brand looks like online and offline, then you just become another has-been brand that's garbage in, garbage out. So let's get your branding consistent no matter what. Now we deal with the question of distribution control. Who's going to make sure that the people representing your brand on Amazon are in fact the companies you want representing your product? Companies who you hopefully are in a position to have a conversation with because you know who they are and you can talk to them about 
uh, you know, what kind of pricing they're using. You can talk to them about what inventory and selection they're carrying of your brand. If you can't have those conversations with them, then you've basically got a bunch of strangers representing your brand. Now, Amazon is an open marketplace. Um, you know, that basically anybody can show up and start selling product. And there's a whole bunch of case law in the United States called first sale doctrine, which is case law that says, if you are in a position where you acquired product legitimately, meaning you, you, you bought it from some retail source, the, the brand can't, can't tell you whether or not you can resell it. And Amazon is full of gray market product where somebody bought product over here and then turned around and sold it on Amazon. And brands get very frustrated because they don't know who these sellers are. Often these sellers sell at prices below what the brand wants to see their products being sold. But these sellers are able to protect themselves using first sale doctrine. Now, I'm not a lawyer and I want to be very clear. I'm not giving legal advice here, um, but there are there are ways that brands can protect themselves from sellers who are using first sale doctrine as a mechanism to basically give themselves to become sophisticated gray market sellers. There are brands that are building what's called online reseller policies, and they're enforcing different forms of trademark that allow them to be able to prevent first sale doctrine as a legitimate argument for these, uh, the, these gray market sellers representing th these brands on Amazon. Um, you know, I, please, please be clear. I want to make absolutely clear. I, I'm not a lawyer. I work with lawyers. The lawyers do the lawyering. I, I do the business stuff. Um, and at the end of the day, if you're a brand and you are concerned about your consumer pricing on Amazon and you don't know who all these resellers are representing your brand, then you need to talk to uh, attorneys who specialize in online reseller policies who can help you enforce your trademark and be in a position where you have more say over who's ultimately going to be selling your products on Amazon or any other online channel. Interesting. Yeah. I think that's a, that could almost be a podcast in itself. You know, the frustration that some brands have about the lack of control because Amazon is so buyer centric, you know, like if, if they try and complain, so many sellers just get the canned response from Amazon. I forgot how it goes. Something like we do not you know, police mm -hmm. wholesaling agreements or, or I'm sure you know what yes. I'm talking about, yes. but you know, it, it just frustrates the heck out of these, these people, like, especially like I work for a, a diet pill company and what was happening was they didn't want people reselling it because, you know, uh, there's like a two year expiration date on, on this product. So technically speaking, this product actually was being sold in Walmarts and targets. Mm -hmm. Somebody could, could pick it up, this diet pill at a Walmart, leave it in their 110 degree car yes. for a year and a half. Yep. Technically it's going to be okay, you know, uh, for expiration date and somebody's going to get it and probably get sick and something might happen. But you know, who's the one who's going to get, you know, the lawsuit, it's going to be the, the diet pill company. And they're like, how do we control this kind of thing? But that definitely, I would love to talk more about that. But if brands do, you know, we, we reach our, our time here, but if brands do want to, you know, reach out to you to get questions, you know, answered about that or, or help, you know, with getting on Amazon, how, how can they reach you, James? So I can be reached at james at buyboxexperts.com. That's B-U-Y-B-O-X experts, buyboxexperts.com. All right, James, uh, thank you very much for your time. I appreciate you coming on the podcast. And until the next time we have you back, we will be in contact and hope you the best in everything you do.